2020 marks Mary Pat Carl's second attempt at the office of St. Louis Circuit Attorney. She came in a distant second in a four-way race in 2016. She's promising an office that keeps people out of prison who shouldn't be there while putting those who should be behind bars. But the national calls for criminal justice reform and recent political trends in the city could make this campaign more complicated than her first. The Democrat joins me next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Littman, and I'm here with one of my esteemed St. Louis Public Radio colleagues. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us today is the uh, one of the two uh, candidates for circuit attorney. Mary Pat Carl. And this is an interview that we've also done with um, the current incumbent circuit attorney, Kim Gardner. So you can also find that podcast on our website. And as we have been for the last, I don't know, four months, and I'll probably be doing for the foreseeable future, um, we are doing this via Zoom. So if you happen to hear, you know, unexpected intrusions, dog barking, small children, etc., that is what is going on. So uh, Mary Pat Carl, this is the second time that you have run for uh, circuit attorney. What prompted you to get into the race in 2020? Sure. So like you said, I ran in 2016, came in second in what was then a four-way primary. Um, And then I worked for the current administration for about a year, then left and went to private practice. And last summer, we lost 12 children in six months to gun violence. I've got uh, four kids total, three little kids, um, who are 10, 8, and about to be 7. He'd want me to say it that way, about to be 7, because it's next week. Um, but I, I kept turning on the news and seeing that we'd lost another child, and it, it just seemed to be a passing headline, and, and no one seemed to be getting really angry about it or coming up with a plan. I kept looking at the little faces that I had at home and thinking about how that not only affects a family that loses a child, but how all over the city we were asking kids to go back to school that fall and know that there was somebody missing in their classroom. How can we expect kids to learn to read or do their science projects when they're experiencing this kind of trauma from losing a classmate to gun violence? So what is uh, the role that you see the the prosecutor playing in that? How is that a motivating factor to to getting into this race as opposed to staying in in private practice and, and working in other ways? Sure. And, and I do work in other ways. I'm on the board of Youth and Family Center, which is a nonprofit just north of downtown. And I, so I certainly um, have been involved in these issues for the last six years. But for me, for a, a prosecutor, when they're not getting convictions at trial in a courtroom, you're sending a message to witnesses that, that they shouldn't come forward, right? If you can't achieve um, justice in a courtroom, you're one, sending them message that um, witnesses who are being brave and coming forward may not in the end, nothing will happen. Um, and two, when, when people feel that 
justice isn't going to happen downtown in a courthouse, they're more likely to pick up a gun and seek retaliation on their own. Both you and your opponent talk about diversion and some alternatives to sentencing. And, and, and I want you to kind of elaborate on what you see as effective diversion policy from a prosecutor's office. Sure. So diversion's been now been around for two administrations. It was started under the previous administration under Jennifer Joyce um, and then continued under Kim Gardner. And what we've seen under her office is the diversion numbers have actually dropped. And, and I think successful diversion should be increasing those numbers every year. Um, and successful diversion looks, um, looks for ways to find accountability that doesn't involve incarceration, to surround people with services, um, address the, what the barriers are between them and productivity or what the barriers are that have led them to end up as a defendant in a courthouse and seeks to solve them. I wanted to go back really quick to the issue of kind of conviction rates and make sure that I understand what you're talking about here. Are you saying specifically those cases that go to trial, the percentage is low? Or are you talking about all of the cases within the prosecutor's office? Because as many people may not know, trials are such a small percentage of what happens in the prosecutor's office. Many of it is, is plea bargains where somebody you know admits to guilt. You're talking specifically about trials, uh, the rate for trials. Exactly. I'm talking about when a prosecutor decides that they've got the right person and the right evidence and they enter a courtroom and they ask a jury to convict somebody. A low conviction rate can be indicative of two things. One, that the prosecutor has the evidence but can't present it effectively to a jury. Or two, the prosecutor never had the evidence and shouldn't have been charging this person in the first place. So those are, those are two reasons that a prosecutor's office might have a low conviction rate at trial when they walk into a courtroom. One of the things too with diversion that I've kind of picked up on is there's a difference between you and your opponent is to keeping it in-house or allowing kind of outside groups to be the one to provide the services. You advocate for more partnerships, your opponent advocates for kind of bringing it all in-house. Why do you believe that it, partnerships are the way to do it rather than within the prosecutor's office? because I don't think lawyers are effectively trained always to meet those needs. Um, there are people far smarter than I am about meeting mental health needs or addressing trauma. There are people that have dedicated their careers to it, have um, done the research. And I think that when we talk about tackling some of these larger problems, it's, it's about forming relationships, forming partnerships and letting everybody do what they do best. So, and I believe we probably asked you this in 2016, among the suggestions of the Ferguson Commission was having an outside prosecutor, specifically in the Ferguson Commission's case, the attorney general handle cases where police officers used deadly force. And what the current circuit attorney has done has, has been to create a unit within her office to investigate those type of instances, not bring in an outside prosecutor. Do you, first of all, do you think that that was the right approach? And number two, if you don't think that was the right approach, do you think that the attorney general should come in whenever a St. Louis police officer shoots and kills somebody? So um, one is that that unit wasn't actually created by the current circuit attorney. There was an internal unit that actually predates Kim Gardner. And so um, Gardner pledged to actually outsource it and then kept the same procedure. Um, I think she just expanded the unit from my understanding within the circuit attorney's office. Um, so I, I am open to the idea of, out, of, of sending those cases outside of the circuit attorney's office. 
my concern in 2016 and my concern in 2020 is the same. Where do they go? I'm not sure that the attorney general's office offers any, solves any of the problems that we have about having those internally. Um, and that is about relationships with the police department. The attorney general's office has to work with the police department just as much as the circuit attorney. My hesitation in 2016 was, well, we don't know who the attorney general is. Um, now we know, and I'm not sure that that's gonna build any more trust in the criminal justice system than having them inside the circuit attorney's office. Um, but my mind is open to this. My mind is open to, you know, maybe we form a, a statewide committee that is willing to come into these jurisdictions that welcome them and look at police-involved shootings. It wouldn't even necessarily mean that the local office couldn't try the case, but it would at least offer another set of eyes um, on what the circuit attorney's office is reviewing. And I asked this to uh, Circuit Attorney Gardner. It does seem like that, that idea lost a lot of momentum locally when Josh Hawley became the attorney general, now Eric Schmidt. And uh, the only other option besides Wesley Bell coming in would be someone like Tim Lomar or somebody from Jefferson County or Franklin County who are all Republicans. Do you think that's one of the reasons why, like, St. Louis and St. Louis County have not asked for outside prosecutors to look into because they would be Republicans? I, I don't want to speculate as to what's in someone else's mind. Um, I think that that's a reasonable explanation of, way, of maybe why it lost ground. Um, it is. It was part of my hesitation in, in 2016. Um, and so, again, it's my hesitation in 2020. So if I'm thinking it, I'm sure other people are thinking it, too. You mentioned relationships between the police department, the criminal justice system, and the communities they're serving. Um, what, what do you think is sort of the, the proper relationship between police and prosecutors? Like, what, what should that look like in a, maybe not a perfect world, but, you know, in a, what should that relationship look like? What's the proper relationship there? Sure. Well, it, it certainly isn't supposed to be adversarial. So I think that, you know, we're going to fight. We're not going to always agree on things. Um, and, but in the end, to remember that we have a lot of the same goals and that there's a way to hold each other accountable without necessarily feeling like we're adversarial, which would mean we are on opposite sides of an issue. So I've, I've sometimes said that, it, that it's like a sibling relationship, but I recognize not everybody has sort of the siblings that maybe I have, which are the ones that are first to call me out on my stuff. Um, so, but that's how I see it is, is that, you know, I have brothers who can say things to me that nobody else can say to me. Um, and I think that that's similarly how it should be. I should be able to call a meeting and say things that maybe no one else can say to the police department, but airing out grievances on the front page of the post-dispatch doesn't solve anything. Some of the issues can also be with the police unions. And that's what your opponent says, is that her issue is not necessarily with the individual officers who are trying to go and do their job, but with the unions representing them. What's, what's your stance on, on that? Is she, is she right on that? Or do you think that she's being unnecessarily adversarial with the officers themselves? Well, I think, I mean, I'm taking her quote on how she feels about it. She didn't say that she felt adversarial to the union. She felt, she answered a, um, in, in an interview that the relationship should be adversarial. Circuit attorney has made uh, a lot of her efforts to find and attempt to reverse wrongful convictions. She's taken the question of who has the authority to do that to the Supreme 
court in terms of asking for a new trial in the case of Lamar Johnson. There may be a ruling by the time this airs, who knows. Um, how do you think that like prosecutors should handle wrongful convictions and what would you do to review potential wrongful convictions, both past and future in a Mary Pat Carl administration? Sure. So I've been a big supporter of conviction integrity units. Um, when I was that head of homicide, I actually was lucky enough to go to Brooklyn um, and attend a seminar by Ken Thompson, who was the first to expand those conviction integrity units beyond simply DNA reviews. Um, and he, so he really, he really is sort of one of the architects of what we now know across the country is conviction integrity units. Um, so. I would, I would absolutely have a conviction integrity unit, but I think now we also need to look at expanding conviction integrity units again, instead of looking at just convictions, but what are unjust sentences as well. So I would definitely add that element in a Mary Pat Carl office, as you put it. Um, I mean, for a long time, we had something called WAP sentences called without probation and parole for drug offenses. And we, we've changed that in the law. We now no longer um, have where we sentence somebody for a drug conviction without the idea that they can get probation or parole, but we still have people serving those sentences. If we've learned to do better, shouldn't we give those people the benefit of that? Would this be something that would be handled solely by attorneys in your office or would it be outsourced to, as you mentioned, potentially with uh, investigating officer involved shootings to committees? Um, how, how would that work? Again, kind of the internal versus external question here. Sure, so one thing I learned um, when I attended that seminar is a, a national best practice is to actually have the, the at, at the very least, the first set of eyes on it to be outside the office. Some, um, some offices around the country have made up their own committees. Some have partnered with law schools that are willing to take them on. The idea is, is that we shouldn't be looking at ourselves. We shouldn't be grading our own paper. And that if you have somebody in the office who has to walk down the hall and look at the prosecutor that might be on the file they're reviewing, it, you know, that relationship could influence even subtly, even without, you know, thinking about it, but it could influence their thoughts. If they think, oh, well, you know, I know so-and-so, I know that that person would never make a mistake, um, that shouldn't enter um, the analysis. But when you've got him in-house, that makes it tough. And we will be right back. Welcome back to Politically Speaking. I'm Rachel Lippman, joined today by my colleague Jason Rosenbaum and Mary Pat Carl, a candidate for circuit attorney. By the time this airs, the Board of Aldermen may have approved legislation that requires the closure of the medium security institution, aka the workhouse, by December 31st of this year. It's a cause that, that you've supported, and I'm wondering what changes you would make to reduce the light in your office that would reduce the likelihood of somebody going to jail, especially pre-trial, so it isn't that we're just transferring inmates over to the criminal justice center downtown and not really doing anything to, to um, reduce that population any further. So one of the first things that I would do to do exactly that is launch what's called an amnesty program or a clean slate program. I don't know about the two of you, but I've missed an appointment or two in my lifespan, right? I've forgotten about a doctor's appointment or maybe I was like, I realized at the last minute I'm just have coffee with a friend. So, um, and I've got um, transportation that I can walk out my door and get into and know that it's gonna be there. Um, I don't generally have childcare problems most of the time. Um, and, and, you know, and I, 
I'm not generally afraid that if I show up late that something horrible is going to happen. We've got a lot of people who have warrants out for their arrest simply because they missed a court date. And, um, and those people are usually reliant on rides to court, taking a bus, um, getting childcare, or maybe even embarrassed to tell a job that where they need to be the next day when they are accidentally scheduled for a time that overlaps with their court date. So what these would do is, is, is an amnesty day or a clean slate day would push um, meetings out of the courthouse and into the community, maybe a church basement or a community center where people could come in and get their warrants reset, get that recalled from not coming, get a new court date, and get back into the into the regular uh, you know trajectory of the court system. What I love about this program is it also benefits victims. If somebody misses a court date, then and they have a warrant out for their arrest, um, that freezes the case. So a victim is kind of in limbo until a person gets picked up on a warrant. Um, and and generally, I also think that you know it could make other situations, it could diffuse those situations when people get pulled over maybe simply for running a stop sign or um, having a broken taillight and they're worried they have a warrant out for their arrest. Um, they may react poorly in a stressful situation. They may hit the gas um, or you know, give another name or something that then only compounds the problems for themselves. So, um, so this would keep um, cases moving in the court system and have fewer people that incarcerated at um, the workhouse, or if we that hopefully closes over at the Justice Center, simply for missing a court date. Another thing I would do is I would appoint a chief of alternative programs. So, you know, we talked about diversion already, which is an alternative program to incarceration. But even though that it's been around for five years, there's no executive level staff position um, in the circuit attorney's office under the two administrations that have had diversion. I'd appoint that immediately. And then what not, well, how that affects jail population immediately is that then there'd be a team that would review diversion candidates from the moment we issue cases so that we can ask for the appropriate bond setting. If somebody's going into a diversion program, they don't need to spend another minute incarcerated. We've already identified them to somebody who wants a different path. Defund the police is an idea that's obviously gaining steam following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. What does that phrase mean to you? And should prosecutors' office be in, prosecutors' offices be included in having funds directed away from them to alternatives? Sure. So defund the police is is right now a big umbrella idea with a lot of um, different ideas on the table. Um, I am I am absolutely supportive of looking for other ways to reimagine public safety. We have um, a unhoused problem. We have mental health issues in our community. We have police in our schools where it's simply a disciplinary question. Yet we ask the police to respond to those situations currently. However, we've trained them on nothing but the power of arrest and on a deadly weapon. So we need to really reimagine how we can have others respond to those situations, diffuse things between neighbors, um, help the unhoused when they're somewhere that you know is dangerous for them, and um, and you know and let the police handle what is the violent crime in the city. This is especially important. We're down officers, so why don't we take what we've been complaining about for years and being down officers? Why don't we use this as a moment to reimagine what a police department could look like and see if we can fill those slots with other people to answer some of those other problems. 
And again, I'm supportive. If we're going to talk about alternatives, we can absolutely do that in a prosecutor's office too. Um, and I think that goes back to where we talked about earlier about diversion programs. Um, we could we could use that off, that money in a prosecutor's office to take out of a law enforcement idea of diversion and divert people before they're even booked. Meaning instead of identifying somebody as a diversion candidate before they, uh, or I'm sorry, when they get into the criminal justice system, when they've been arrested and they show up at a first appearance or cases applied on, what if that they never get booked and they get diverted out of the criminal justice system um, immediately? So I'm going to ask this question with the preface to our audience that Circuit Attorney Gardner cannot talk about this particular question as openly as she wants to because the Eric Greitens case is currently under multiple layers of litigation, which really does kind of hamstring her response. So I'm going to ask this question very carefully. What do you think the political impact will be from the fallout of Circuit Attorney Gardner's uh, unsuccessful effort to prosecute former Governor Greitens? That's a big question you asked carefully. Um, as far as the, the political fallout, I don't, um, you know, I think we've seen it. I think it's, you know, we need to start moving past the at Eric Greitens world um, and, and start, you know, we've got a crime problem, we've got 60 children shot, and we're still talking about Eric Greitens. You are one of a number of the attorneys, as you mentioned in, in your, the introduction, that you, you left the current administration's office after about a year, um, one of many attorneys who chose to do so. What led you to, to depart? So um, there wasn't a clear um, where the office was going. There wasn't a clear message. It was sort of chaotic from day one, which is why many people left the office is, um, you know, I think a lot of people were really excited when Kim Gardner won. Um, I was very excited about a lot of this, her programs and what she wanted to bring and was willing to kind of put my ego in my pocket and, and support her in that change. And then weeks ticked by and none of us had a clear direction of where the office was going. And then there were situations um, such as the time Morley Swingle was asked to try a case where he believed the alibi of the defendant. Um, and, you know, for all previous administration's faults and or, you know, less than perfection, we were never asked to try a case or go forward on a case or plead a case where we weren't positive that the person was guilty. And I think that, um, you know, for me, that was watching that play out was a motivating factor that maybe this wasn't the office for me. You mentioned that you were excited about some of the ideas that the circuit attorney had had. Are there programs that she's implemented that you would keep if you were elected or build upon if you were elected that you think have actually done some good and you know could could stand to be kept around? Um, I haven't I haven't seen a lot of those programs come to life. I mean, I would continue diversion, but that didn't originate with Ms. Gardner. Um, and like I said, I ran on conviction integrity units. I would obviously make some changes to them. But um, in the end, there's nothing there that I think was, was original. Um, I think that diversion needs to be much further along five years in than it is right now. 
What would you say to critics who may be listening to your support for Close the Workhouse, your support for diversion for some of the other things, and wonder if these are, you know, sincere positions or positions that you've moved to in order to, uh, you know, more closely challenge the circuit attorney on her turf? I think anybody that has known me um, knows that these are sincere positions. I mean, I think. I was a women's studies major, much to my parents' chagrin all the way back in college. I chose the college I did because um, it had a social service slant. This is who I am. I think what more accurately happened is I got pictured, I'm sorry, I got painted a picture of me in 2016 that wasn't accurate. Um, I think, you know, the American wrote an article after the debate at SLU um, put on by Action STL that said my endorsements were doing me a disservice because I was much more progressive than originally appeared. So I think that, I think my critics painted me a certain way and people bought it, but this is who I am. How has George Floyd's death kind of changed or shaped the contours of this race? I know it's only been, uh, it's actually been a couple of months now since he was killed by Minneapolis police. And I'm just wondering if you think, how much different you think the race might have looked if that hadn't happened? Well, it, that, that's hard to predict. I mean, I think, I think it's got people talking. I think it's gotten people digging in and looking at, at beliefs they hold and ways that they can change. But in the end, I don't know that that has much impact on the race um, itself. Okay, I want to ask you a political question, because you, in addition to being a candidate, I believe you are the 16th Ward committee woman, by the way. Congratulations on that. I used to live in the 16th Ward, as I'm sure you know. One of the challenges I see, I'm just going to be very blunt about this. One of the challenges that I see for you in this candidacy is the black community may see the uh, attacks on Gardner politically as sort of a existential attack on the black political community. And you may have a situation like you saw in 2012, where there's a huge effort to get black turnout to vote for the black candidates. And if you don't have any appeal in North City, and you're also not getting votes among white progressives, Gardner has a built-in advantage because of those two factors. You may say that your ideas have uh, appealed to both black and white St. Louisans, but I, I want you to address the reality sometimes that black voters vote for black candidates and not all white vote voters vote for white candidates, and that may put you at a disadvantage at this race. I understand that's the general political philosophy that people try to subscribe to in St. Louis, but I think what may be different about this race is that um, there are neighborhoods in St. Louis who've suffered more under the lack of prosecutions that have happened. Um, I've had multiple, uh, I mean, I would estimate about five um, moms who have lost children to um, murders who have talked about the way that the office has treated them, that they don't feel that they've never felt in the times that they've talked to Ms. Gardner or anyone in the office that they are a priority, um, that they often don't get callbacks or that when they do, they're spoken to for about two minutes and no one seems to know anything about the case or that the case was issued, but then charges were dropped and they weren't contacted. So I think that they're, that those people are angry 
and they're talking and they're sharing those stories with their neighbors. Um, you know, we talk about how when someone is killed on a block that, the, that everybody knows, right? The whole block feels it. Um, and that that's a lot of the trauma that's happening in certain neighborhoods is that people are terrified that that means that they're next or they're terrified for their kids that it might mean that their kids are next. Um, I think that same message or that same information about the way that the confidence or lack of confidence that they have in the circuit attorney's office also travels at the same rate. And I think people really just want to be heard. They want to feel that um, they have a voice in the criminal justice system. And when victims don't feel that way, um, they're, they're going to spread the word. For all of our coverage of the circuit attorney race, all of our other podcasts, all of our other content, you can go online to stlpublicradio.org. I'm on Twitter at R. Lipman. And Mary Pat, how can people find you on Twitter, Facebook, uh, all other portions of the World Wide Web? Sure. Facebook is um, MPC for STL and Twitter is Mary Pat Carl. And is that for the number or for the word? Great question. For the number. For the number. All right. Until next time. So long, everyone. Mm -hmm.